I'm told that the new church facility is going to have automatically locking doors at the... Also, there's no back row. Did you know that? In the new auditorium, yeah. There's no back row in the new auditorium. It's amazing. I have to make up jokes and say funny things about the new church building because otherwise I'd have to say the sad things about the delays and the problems and the city's uh, difficulties and so forth. Anyway, y'all prayed for that this morning, right? Well, then I won't, I'll quit worrying about it. Your prayers are uh, much better than mine anyway. Let's uh, go to Luke 18. We want to be in Matthew 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18 all at the same time. This is a new episode for us starting today, episode 36 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus. We're really approaching the end of this. Uh, it only goes to event 42, and the ones coming up are pretty short. Um, we have the ambition of James and John where they try to rope their mother into securing the uh, the assigned seating at the wedding supper. Uh, there's the healing of Bartimaeus, the, the, the blind Bartimaeus and his healing. The interview with Zacchaeus, parable of the Minas, the return back to the home of Mary and Martha where there is a plot to kill uh, Lazarus. Uh, they're ex- extremely upset that this dead guy didn't stay dead. And so, obviously, the solution is to uh, to kill him. <laughs> you know, we can't have this not-dead guy stay not-dead anymore, so let's try to kill him again, see if that works. Like it really worked the previous time, you know. Well, we'll uh, we got those coming up. Anyway, these are the final six episodes of the uh, last Judean and Perean ministry, uh, including today's then, our final seven episodes. This is episode 36, Jesus Foretells the Death and Resurrection. And to let you know how close, uh, we don't have an exact calendar on how long it takes for these events, you know, for James and John's mother to come or to heal Bartimaeus or to have his ministry with Zacchaeus, uh, to deliver one more parable, to go back to Mary and Martha's house. Uh, it's it. I think a month is is generous, and we may even be in the last couple of weeks prior to the Passion Week itself. So that gives you an idea of exactly how close we are to uh, his work on the cross. All right. Well, like I say, uh, Matthew 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18. Let's start in Luke, Luke 18, and uh, we'll bring in Mark and Matthew as necessary. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. This will give each one of us the opportunity to confess our sins, to set aside distractions, to uh, to repent of our gloomy comments regarding the church construction, and uh, prepare for the blessings he has for us today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together. And Father, we're thankful for the grace provision that uh, Live Oak very graciously allows us to remain in this facility, to keep teaching our classes, to keep ministering the word, and we thank you for that. Father, we know uh, the move to the new building is entirely in your hands. Uh, we can't grow discouraged over the uh, the unfortunate rains of the, lap- of the past three weeks, Father, because you're the one who sent us those rains. You're in charge of the rain. You're in charge of our of our move. And so uh, we can't start grumbling now other than to, to blame you for, for being so slow. Father, we, uh, we're not going to dare do that. We thank you that you're not slow. You're patient. And we uh, rejoice in your patience towards each one of us. So, Father, teach us what we need to learn regarding patience and uh, teach us um, as quick as you can. Father, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs> All right. I tell you. I'm just looking forward to getting past that patience thing so I can move on to the next item that love is. Yeah, you know, I think there's more to beyond patience. I just hadn't gotten there yet. All right. Luke 18. Uh, we've not actually been in Luke. We've been in Matthew because of the parable of the, of the laborers. Uh, but you'll notice this does pick right up with where we have been not too long ago in... Uh, uh, the episode there with the rich young ruler and then the disciples were all grumbling about, hey, you know, we gave away all our money. We threw away everything to become your disciples. Well, we can move on to verse 31 then in Luke 18. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets 
about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. All right, that's Luke's account. Join me now in Mark chapter 10. We'll look at Mark's account. Ooh, and while we're doing this, I forgot. I want to get my Libronics up and running. All right, Mark chapter 10. Again, we'll notice the uh, context here very similar. The rich young ruler, uh, the disciples complaining, hey, we threw away everything. And uh, Jesus teaching them about the first will be last, the last will be first. And this is the, what led to the parable we read about in Matthew 20 on the, uh, the vineyard owner and the, the laborers, the 11th hour laborers. And then we pick it up in verse 32, Mark 10:32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. I think this, this first verse in the Mark account helps us to frame the event, helps us to set the uh, stage that it really describes a vivid um, parade almost Jesus leading the way and then the 12 uh, in amazement and then those following uh, even further back uh, more fearful uh, almost they can't believe he's really going to Jerusalem and uh, and so they're watching him go and he's going and they, they just kind of there's you know a crowd of them are amazed the disciples and then another crowd is fearful and yet they kind of follow at a distance kind of a thing so we pick up on some of the vividness of it there in uh, in Mark's account. Um, so he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, and uh, this account here is pretty similar to what we just read there in Luke. Um, he omits one word, but otherwise it's word for word the account that, uh, that Luke had. All right, over to Matthew chapter 20 then. Let's get Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 20. And we can almost ignore everything in Matthew, almost, uh, in this parallel record, because virtually everything here is to be found in Mark and Luke, with one unique exception. And it's uh, Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 17 through 19. All right, so that's running. Let's go ahead and get this going again. All right. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. That's unique to this Matthew account. Uh, Mark and Luke do not use the starao, the, the term for crucifixion, the way Matthew does here. Um, the first reference to crucifixion is right there. Uh, they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify, and on the third day he will be raised up. Okay, well, there we have it. We've read all three accounts. Any questions? <laughs> all right. Now, we'll go through. We'll get you some details. I'm in a goofy mood today. How'd that happen? All right. First of all, context. I always try to frame the event with the first point of study. Point one, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem for several months now. In fact, he has been on his way since uh, basically the last Passover that he skipped. He did not go to the Passover one year ago. He uh, has been attending Passover every time, you know, every year for his whole life as far as we understand. And uh, following his baptism at the River Jordan, we have the reference to a number of Passover events, uh, including, by the way, I, I do uh, hold that the feast in John 5 is a Passover feast. That's, that is debatable, but I hold that it is a Passover feast, and that's what gives us our three-and-a-half-year calendar for the uh, ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, he's been on his way for several months now. There's a whole chain of references here in the Gospel of Luke 
starting in Luke 9 and then other references in 13, chapter 17, chapter 18, where we are today. Uh, it'll come up again in chapter 19. But this event marks his final approach to the crucifixion. This is his final on the way. There are no more side trips. There are no more other things. And every event that takes place from the ambition of James and John, to the, the ones I just read earlier, these are all literally on the way, not turning neither to the left nor to the right. This is his final approach. We went through this on an earlier class. I don't remember exactly when. I don't believe I made reference to it when we were in Luke 9, but I know uh, I specifically recall bringing it up when we were in Luke 13. This, uh, there's a reason why this portion of the Gospel of Luke is sometimes called the travel log. Uh, or Luke's travel log. Luke is very um, descriptive in his traveling terminology and his repeated use of the expression on the way to Jerusalem. And so in Luke 9:51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And basically what this is coinciding with is the conclusion of the Galilean ministry where he's no longer headquartered in Capernaum. He's no longer headquartered or he's no longer based in a fixed headquarters where he has um, circuits. Okay, Throughout the, uh, the Galilean ministry, he had a fixed headquarters in, in Capernaum and then he would make circuits. He would make uh, traveling uh, travel circuits around Galilee and even out to Phoenicia and then back and across the Sea of Galilee over to the eastern side. And But he always used uh, Capernaum as his base of operations. Well, once, this, once Luke starts describing this chain of events on his way to Jerusalem, we understand that he's no longer based out of a fixed headquarters, that he is constantly moving, he's constantly proceeding towards the, uh, the work on the cross. And so it's described here in Luke 9, the days were approaching for his ascension, and he was determined to go to Jerusalem. It's as if he has crossed his Rubicon, as it were, and he is now, nothing's going to derail him from arriving on Passover. He can't get there too soon. He has to die on Nisan 14, on the, uh, <clears throat> the day in which the Passover lamb is executed. Then uh, a few chapters later in Luke 13, he's still on his way. He's still on his way. And I think this is not so awkward except for our modern uh, perspective on transportation and travel. Uh, in an ancient world context, you can be on your way somewhere for years. Okay? Um, so being on your way somewhere for months is not unusual. In fact, it's very normal. To be on your way somewhere for weeks is extremely normal. Uh, to just pick up and go somewhere in a single day is unheard of. It's impossible in the transportation standards of the ancient world. And so uh, we read about it again in, in Luke 13:22, As he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. In chapter 17 and verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village and ten lepers were there and we uh, dealt with that already. All right. And then our chapter today is Luke 18. Again, he looked to the 12. And, and now this is not simply a um, third person author's narrative description. This is actually a first person discourse. This is his quotation. This is Jesus himself saying what he's doing. He took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. All right. This is what we're doing. You know, Luke's been writing about it. But now Jesus is actually saying it. And uh, how many more of these are there? Well, not many because you get to uh, chapter 19 and we see his triumphal entry. 1911. Um, and this is right after the episode here with Zacchaeus. And uh, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Wow, we're getting closer to Jerusalem. You know, imagine we're going to cross the, 
the uh, boundaries. They're going to enter through a gate. And, and then all of a sudden, angels descending and hallelujah chorus. And here's the kingdom. Um, he didn't teach them anything to leave, leave them with that impression. And in fact, he's been repeatedly telling them about his death. That's what our whole episode today is about. And they're not going to get it. They don't want to get it. They're not going to get it. And part of it's going to be deliberately withheld from them so that they don't get it. And uh, you ask, well, why would God? God's not a liar. God's not confusing. Why would God not let us understand something? Uh, Doesn't God want us to know everything right here, right now? No. There are things we're not ready for yet. And when we're ready, then we'll understand it. And not too soon. And maybe we're ready for it, but our wife's not ready for it. So we get retarded until such time as we're able uh, to see it together, as heirs together of the grace of life. And uh, I'm, I'm giving away this conclusion to today's class already. Why was it that the 12 were not permitted, or the 11, were not permitted to understand the totality of what Christ was speaking of related to the, the, the cross? Well, well, we'll break that down for you. All right, so in 1911... They assume, hey, we're this close. The, uh, we're practically in Jerusalem. We're as, as close as we can get here. And uh, they suppose the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And, uh, and then, but it's not until verse 28, after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going to Jerusalem. And they approached Bethpage and Bethany near Mount Olivet and uh, dispatches two of them to, uh, to run on ahead and... Uh, find the things that are prepared so that's how close we are and like i say i think we don't have exact calendars on these events 36 through 42 but i think it's closer to uh it's it's i can't imagine it being more than a month and uh and i think it's probably closer to uh two weeks uh that I, it's very easy that these things could be done in two weeks or even one week prior to the passion week itself so um Anyway, we can guesstimate it's 33 A.D. We can guesstimate that it's, uh, spring is approaching as, uh, as we're approaching uh, April the 5th or March 30th. March 30th is the triumphal entry on Palm Monday, and uh, April 5th is, the, is Good Friday, the crucifixion on Friday, April 5th, 33 A.D. Been on his way for several months now, but this event marks his final approach to the crucifixion. And this is what we have detailed in Matthew 20:17, Mark 10:32, Luke 18:31, and of course that one verse there, Mark 20 verse 19, is the verse where we have the verb "crucify." That they will crucify him. He is going to uh, be uh, executed in the most excruciatingly painful, shameful, uh, criminal manner known to man in this day and age all right secondly he leads the way (laughs) he leads the way jesus led the way to the amazement and fear of the 12 and other disciples jesus led the way jesus led the way to the amazement and fear of the 12 and other disciples as i said in mark 10 32 we've got the most descriptive um, account. Mark was very much, in his writings, was very much oriented to the servants, to the people, to how they responded, to how things were perceived and how they were responded to. Mark's the one that points out you know, how crowded things get and how Jesus had to step into a boat and kind of get a little bit away from the shore because the people were all crowded. Mark is very servant-minded. And then the logistics of how to, how to put 5,000 people on a mountaintop or 4,000 people on a, on a beach, you know, the, the logistics, a servant would think about that. Well, where's everybody going to sit? How are we going to feed all these folks? And, and we get time and time again, we get little details like that, servant-minded details in the Gospel of Mark. And here again, I think we have an illustration of that, the, the amazement of the disciples. What is it that just causes your jaw to drop when you go, oh, I can't believe he just said that. <laughs> I can't believe the Lord's really doing that. And oh my goodness, is that really what's going on? And uh, the amazement. You can be amazed in faith and you can be amazed in fear. Uh, and I think we see them both here. We see amazement on the part of the twelve and then fearful. And... Uh, you can, you can kind of construct the grammar on this in a, in a couple of different ways. I think it's best to view the amazed as, as one group and the fearful as another group following after at a distance. But clearly when he takes aside the 12, he took the 12 aside. 
Aside from what? Okay. Aside from the others. Aside from the non-twelve. Okay. Aside from the additional disciples and crowds and hangers-on and critics and Pharisees and haters and all kinds of folks. He takes the twelve aside. This message was preparing them. Preparing them. Not the hoi polloi, not the general audience, but the twelve specifically had to be notified. All right. Amazement and fear. Amazement and fear. I think there's a whole realm of application we could think of with respect to this in terms of spiritual leadership. Um, when you're convicted as to the will of God and obedient to the direction he's taking you. Uh, how do you respond when your support staff uh, doesn't understand what you're doing or why you're doing it? Okay. Uh, you know, you could take this and put this in a... Instead of Jesus, the twelve, and the others, how about we had a pastor and deacons and congregation? <laughs> All right. And the deacons are amazed and the congregation's terrified. What are we doing? All right. Anyway. Or uh, a husband and a wife and the children. And the husband's under a conviction. We're packing the house, selling everything, moving to Timbuktu. All right. We're going to be missionaries. And the wife is amazed and the children are afraid. <laughs> uh, so what's the, what's the answer then? Well, stop. Slow down. Let's get some teaching. Let's review what the Father's doing. Let's review what's going on. And that's what Jesus takes the time to do. Takes the time to instruct the amazement of the twelve. Uh, I just find a lot of excitement here all right point three the 12 were selected for personal instruction the 12 were selected for personal instruction on the coming passover events we're going to get an outline of the passion week we're going to get an outline right here a month before it happens and it shouldn't be a shock because bit by bit by bit little details contained here have been spoken of for months. Even going back to Matthew 16, when uh, Jesus asked Peter, he said, who do the people think I am, and who do you say I am? And uh, Peter said, thou art the Christ, son of the living God, and blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And all the celebration, that great event for Peter, followed by the very quick uh, instructions about, oh, and by the way, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be, didn't use the word crucified in Matthew 16, but put to death. At which point Peter says, oh, no, 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 <laughs> may it never be, far be it from thee, this shall never happen to you. And so Peter has, uh, Christ has to tell Peter, well, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> okay, so this isn't, a, this isn't out of the blue. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. This, however, is the most comprehensive and thorough outline they've been given. There's no question. This is going to spell it out. I mean, this spells it out in terms of all the... Uh, you know, mocked, mistreated, spit upon, scourged, killed, crucified. You know, uh, all of this is going to be laid out step by step by step by step in a, in a thorough fashion, kind of bringing together not only everything he's been saying for a year now or six months, but everything that the Bible has been saying for 4,000 years. And he's going to provide a synthesis of prophetic revelation. He's going to provide an inductive uh, Bible class based on Genesis to Malachi, based on everything spoken of concerning the Christ from the seed of the woman promise in Genesis 3 all the way through Malachi, the closing of the Hebrew canon. So here we get it. Again, I think the reference in Luke is significant. All prophetic revelation all prophetic revelation concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. So this is subpoint A. Again, main point three, the twelve were selected for personal instruction on the coming Passover events. Subpoint A, all prophetic revelation concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold. You know, behold, that's ringing the bell. <laughs> All right? That's grabbing the attention. That's saying, look at this. In fact, it's an imperative of look. Okay? See here. Behold. 
Pay attention. We are going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written about, uh, written through the prophets, remember God's the ultimate author, but he used human tools, written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. If the prophets wrote about it, it will be accomplished. Starting in the first advent fulfillments and then, of course, second advent fulfillments. All prophetic revelation will be accomplished. So what is he doing? Does he say most of it, some of it? He says all of it. All the things which are written. He's going to do the same thing, by the way, after the resurrection. He's going to talk to these two men on the Emmaus Road. And they're not going to have a clue as to what's going on. So what does he do? He says, beginning with Moses, he explained to them these things which had to take place. Beginning with Moses means what? Genesis. The Pentateuch, starting with Moses. Okay? Going back to Genesis 3 and the seed of the woman and walking all the way through all the messianic truth found with Moses, found with the prophets, found in the Psalms, found in all the the Hebrew texts. Beginning with Moses means you do an inductive study, Bible study, Genesis to, well, we say today, Genesis to Revelation. For Jesus, it was Genesis to Malachi. Okay? Join me, if you would, in Daniel chapter 9, and we'll start to see, this would be clearly one of the prophecies that would have been addressed to the twelve no shortage of them there are different resources out there by the way for identifying um, the different prophecies of the old testament and which ones were first advent fulfillment which ones are second advent fulfillment i intend to write someday um not a replacement volume for any of those i think the ones that are out there are excellent but i think that they fall short in a couple of respects and i would like to write maybe a a supplement or a study guide to to, to complement some of the good tools that are in existence already but i think that there are also prophets uh, promise uh, prophecies that are neither first or second advent but could be viewed in either case and need to be viewed in both cases Uh, For instance, the prophecy of the forerunner is both first and second advent because it has its fulfillment in John the Baptist in the first advent scope of things. and It's going to have its fulfillment again in second advent as well. Um, I think also there's prophecies that we don't even know are prophecies until they're fulfilled. And then scripture says, oh, by the way, this is to fulfill what was written out of Egypt. I will call my son, for example. There's no clue that Hosea 11 was a prophecy until it's fulfilled in Matthew chapter two. And so that's a that's a. um, a classification of prophecy I think of as a uh, as a stealth prophecy, one that's only known after the fact that, oh, that's what it was saying ahead of time. So, and our Lord has, uh, our scriptures have a number of those type prophecies as well. But here's one that very clearly would have been given because this was dear to the, uh, to the Jewish people. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city. And remember in the context of Daniel 9, uh, they are in captivity, they are in Babylon, and uh, they're looking forward to returning to Jerusalem. It's been 70 years, and Jeremiah had promised that they would be in captivity for 70 years. And uh, Daniel had been a boy or a young man, and now he's an old man. Uh, if he was 14 at his capture, he's now 84, and he's lived through the 70 years of captivity. And and yet He's terrified. <laughs> Because he knows the 70 years is up, but he also knows Israel has not repented one whit. The Jewish people are just as wicked, idolatrous, rebellious. And and why would God put them back in Jerusalem when they're still, you know, as carnal as they were when they started? So he starts praying. He starts praying hard. And then he gets this answer. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. It's a powerful, powerful message. Seventy sevens. Each of these weeks is a period of seven years. Seventy sevens have been decreed. And this is all second advent, by the way. This will all be realized in the millennium uh, for all of this to be concluded but notice in verse 25 so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild jerusalem until messiah the prince there will be seven and 62 all right what's seven and 62 that's 69 
And that's going to leave you one week shy, one week short. But know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62, which is, of course, after the seven. So if you want to combine it, if you want to synthesize all this, we can say after the 69th. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And so right here, and this was given six centuries before it happened. Right here is the calendar. Right here is the schedule for when these events are going to take place. And it, and it gets kicked off with the issuing of a decree. And by the way, we got all these notes that are in the Daniel Revelation notebook, for example, because there's some confusion. There's several decrees that you could look at. The decree of Cyrus or a decree of, of Darius or a, second, or a decree of Arta, uh, Artaxerxes or then the second decree of Artaxerxes. There's four leading contenders. And which one should be the kickoff to this calendar? And uh, if you remember in our Daniel Revelation series, it's the last of those four. It's the second decree of Artaxerxes that uh, is the only one, by the way, that references the walls, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, not just the temple, but the city itself. And it was the second decree of Darius that authorizes rebuilding the city walls. And with that decree issued, then um, according to uh, verse 25, then the uh, clock starts ticking for these uh, sevens that are then going to be counted. But after the 69th week, Messiah is cut off. It has nothing. The term cut off there means executed. Executed. And so Jesus is taking the twelve aside and showing them, look, we're approaching the end of week 69. We're approaching the end of week 69. And by the way, these are 360-day prophetic years. Uh, you're, you have to do the, the homework on this to understand it. But um, if you want more information on that, it's in the, it's in the Daniel notebook. All right? And to the day. Week 69 is concluded. 69 times 7 times 360 days. And to the day, from um, whatever it was, March 5th of, of uh, 445 B.C., okay, to the day comes Monday, March 30th, 33 A.D., the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, to the day. And it's, it's, it's amazing. I think it's miraculous and prophetic fulfillment and which is why the unbelievers hate the book of daniel so much and they try to post date it they try to say it was written in the maccabean era it was written in the roman era or they, i mean they, they make it as late as they can because they hate the way it predicts the things that it does and they and they, they don't accept that god can write things ahead of time and so they uh they just have to push it as late as late as late as they can the problem is they can't get around this this is predicting the crucifixion of jesus christ to the day and uh, even they're, they're just so i mean the fact that this is in the hebrew scriptures the fact that it's translated into the septuagint tells you that it can't have been written as late as they tell you it must have been written it had to have been written earlier than that or it wouldn't have found its way in the septuagint and it wouldn't have found its way in the hebrew canon see it'd be like trying to claim that a you know a, a paragraph uh wasn't written or a document wasn't written until the 20th century when uh, you you know that it's uh, it's a quotation from the the Declaration of Independence. You know, and say, well, it's a hard time defending a 20th century date for this when we have we have documentary evidence of this thing showing up in 1776. You know, it's in the Septuagint. It can't be as late as they're saying it is. It's in the Hebrew Masoretic text. It can't be as late as they're saying it is. All right. The um, Messiah, the Prince, will be cut off and have nothing. The term cut off there is an execution term. And that's what happens. The Christ gets executed. Capital punishment inflicted by the Romans. But now notice. And the people of the Prince who is to come. That's not Messiah, the Prince. 
That's another prince, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist. Robert Anderson called him the coming prince. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Please take note. It may not be important to you today, but it may be important to you down the road. Um, This verse encompasses not only the crucifixion in 33 A.D., but it encompasses the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. There are 37 years in this one verse. Messiah the Prince will be cut off. That's 33 A.D. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. 70 A.D. Notice that? From 33 to 70. You've got 37 years. All in the one verse. And we haven't even reached week 70 yet. Because it's not until verse 27 that we finally get to the 70th week of Daniel. The prince who is to come, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. There, finally, we have reference to week 70. It's critical that you understand that in verse 26, the events of verse 26, which span 37 years of time, the events of 36 are not in week 70. They are after week 69. Did you catch that? They don't take place in... In week 70, they take place after week 69, and we don't see week 70 until the next verse. This passage is demanding a gap of time in between week 69 and week 70. It doesn't tell us how long that gap is, but it insists that there has to be a gap in between week 69 and week 70. It'd be like telling you that we're going to do something um, after Thursday. And, but I'm not saying we're going to do it on Friday, okay? But we're going to do it after Thursday. We're going to do this activity, whatever. And then when Friday comes, we're going to do something else. And you're going to say, how's that going to happen? How are we going to just insert this length of time in between Thursday and Friday? Well, that's exactly what's happening. That's what this text tells us is happening. It says after the 62 weeks. And so we have this gap of time. And as I said, we've got that gap of time right there that's at least 37 years. All right. Longer if you hold to an earlier crucifixion date. I'm, I'm locked into the 33 AD date. No one's ever going to talk me out of that. But there are believers who hold a 32 and 30 AD for the crucifixion. I, I, don't, I don't part fellowship with them because their scholarship is so sloppy. I think <laughs> you can have a difference of opinion on that. That's fine. Um. As far as that goes. And uh, so also too, this verse also opens my eyes to some certain things that who says, you know, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, who put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Who's to say that if the rapture occurs tonight or if the rapture occurs at noon today, who's to say the tribulation starts tomorrow? Say, Nothing that says it has to be that day or the next day or that week or the next week. Could it be 37 years later? Well, if this verse gives us a pattern, then it sure could be 37 years later. I don't think it'll be that long. I think the table's pretty set right now. I think Satan's chomping in the bit. He's ready to unveil his Antichrist. He's just under restraint and can't do it yet. But there could be, who knows what length of time there could be if, in fact, the trumpet sounds and we're gone and then... Satan's restraint is lifted, and now he can procreate and create the Nephilim Antichrist that I think is going to arrive on the scene. So that requires uh, a pregnancy and a childbirth and a uh, growing up to adult status and, uh, and uh, forming the revived Roman Empire and all the things that have to happen. So it, it doesn't have to be a day. Can't, I don't think it can be a day or a week or a month. It could be a period of time. Good news is, of course, um, none of his plans work either. Antichrist is done away with as well. And uh, if he inflict, if Rome inflicted a uh, a uh, desolation on Jerusalem, it's nothing compared to the complete destruction, desolation that's going to occur in the tribulation. That uh, 70 A.D. was just simply a foreshadowing of the of the uh, the destruction that will come in uh in the end times all right 
I guess one last little detail to glean out of here. We, we touched on this Sunday night, too, by the way. So this is two sessions in a week where we've really been dealing with Daniel. Um, it doesn't say that Antichrist destroys the city. What does it say? It says in verse 26, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. So the coming prince who makes the covenant with the many for one week in verse 27, that's Antichrist who signs his deal with the Jews to start the tribulation. Um, he doesn't, he's not involved in 70 AD, but his people are. His people are. So, historically, we recognize who is it that destroyed the temple in 70 A.D.? It was the Romans. All right, it was the Romans. And um, that's why we understand the Roman um, lineage, the Roman people. That's who he identifies with culturally. He's going to be a Roman. I know, I know it's real popular these days. About the last 10 years, I think since 9-11, can I be honest with you? It really has thrived since September 11th. 2001, but there is more and more growing uh, among pop evangelicals um, desire to try to turn Antichrist into a Muslim, to try to turn the uh, revived Roman Empire into an Islamic caliphate, to try to turn uh, the, uh, the end times apostasy one world religion into Islam, see, the harlot of Revelation 17, and it's getting more and more popular, and I've had people ask me about it. I think it's garbage, and uh, we'll make very clear on this. It wasn't Muslims that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It was the Romans. And uh, when you look at the statue of Daniel 2, when you look at the beasts of Daniel 7, you got Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome in the statue. you got Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome in the beasts. And the king, millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ puts an end to Rome, does not put an end to a fifth kingdom. There is no fifth beast, and there is no fifth portion of that statue. So, anyway, if you read any of that or encounter any of that, if you read any of the, the uh, Joel Rosenberg stuff or any of the other authors uh, that, that write that kind of stuff, um, just relax. Because I think that's fatally flawed. All right. All prophetic revelation concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, including his execution at the appointed time. At the appointed time. Jerusalem is the scene of the crime. Subpoint B. This is main point three, subpoint B. Jerusalem is the scene of the crime. Where else would the Christ be crucified? There is no more fitting city on the face of the earth for the death of a Jewish prophet. <laughs> Where else have Jewish prophets been known to die, to be put to death? You know, not Babylon. In Babylon, a, a lion's den and a fiery furnace. And you can't kill a prophet in Babylon. But in Jerusalem? Oh, yeah. And I find this interesting, too. So he's teaching them about this. This will come up again in his uh, final message here in Matthew 23 when you get into the we turn to Matthew 23. Some of his final discourses in the Mount Olivet Discourse, the Upper Room Discourse. But in Matthew 23, pronouncing these woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. And that's wishful thinking on their part, and it's a lie. It's just self-righteousness that somehow we're better than they were. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Verse 31 says, you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murder the prophets. Their pride, they, they acknowledge that what their forefathers did, and they build these glorious tombs. Is it a way to assuage their guilt? Is it a way to kind of make up for, well, yeah, we're kind of sad that, you know, our forefathers uh, sawed Isaiah in half, you know? Um, so let's, if we maintain these elaborate tombs, then we can we can boast how righteous we are and how good we are and how we're better than our forefathers and blah, 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 blah. 
Truth is, they weren't. They claim, they thought they were, and in their pride, they're going to con- they're going to commit the greatest crime of all. They're going to crucify the Christ. You know, think about that. Every prophet that spoke of the coming Christ got put to death, many of them. But now these guys who think they're so much better, they're going to execute the very Christ that all those prophets were predicting. And even worse, in their pride at how glorious these tombs are, they're actually illustrating themselves who outwardly are glorious and beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones. You know, I mean, as pretty as you make it, every, every tomb has a corpse inside there. And uh, Jesus says, this is you guys. Outwardly, a great appearance. Inwardly, disgusting. Corrupt, decaying, dead. So where else but Jerusalem would be the fitting location where every other Jewish prophet that's been executed has been executed. All right. Um, Acts 7.52 in, in uh, Stephen's message at his martyrdom kind of like the way he says this you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the holy spirit it's an interesting phrase particularly if your theology does not allow resistance okay if your theology has an irresistible component to it You men who are stiff-necked and circumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? <laughs> right? What prophet was there that lived to a ripe old age full of days? And All right. It seems like the most of them, the bulk of them. You take this and combine it with Hebrews 11, men of whom the world is not worthy. I don't think, you know, Elijah... Just because he got the chariot escape route, <laughs> or they had to put him to death too. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You crucified the Christ. That's why he's not afraid of, uh, not afraid of what they're about to do to him. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. They were already exhibiting the demonic activity of gnashing teeth. And that's uh, what they're going to be doing for all eternity, by the way, in the outer darkness. And being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is normally seated at the right hand of God. The fact that he takes his stand at the moment of Stephen's martyrdom is uh, is extraordinary. A lot of people put a lot of draw a lot of conclusions from that, that uh, at the victorious martyrdom of a righteous believer in the church age, Jesus will stand up to welcome a hero who suffers the death of martyrdom. I think that's compatible with what we see there in that episode, but you want to be cautious against drawing a lengthy conclusion over just one short little verse like that. But it is a pattern. And you can't deny that Jesus is normally seated till the Father makes the enemy as a footstool. And in this occasion, he's not seated. He takes his stand. He takes his stand. All right. So Jerusalem is the scene of the crime. Thirdly, the Son of Man is going to be doubly betrayed. Point C. The Son of Man will be doubly betrayed. It's listed twice. Well, in Matthew's account, and Mark's account is listed twice. and Luke's account is only listed once, but it's inferred. There are two betrayals. One to the Pharisees, or one to the religious leaders, and then one to the Gentiles. And the verb is paradidomy. We've done these studies many, many times, and we won't give you a lengthy one. I'm just listing vocabulary for you today. Para, P-A-R-A, didomy, D-I-D-O-M-I. Para, didomy. Didomy is the verb to give. Para is over. So to give over, to hand over. And um, it doesn't have to be in a negative sense. You can, it could be handing over in a positive sense. In which case we don't translate it betray, we translate it entrust. 
pastors are commanded to entrust the word of God to their flock. Paradidomy. All right, we're supposed to uh, train men for the ministry. The things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these things entrust to faithful men. Paradidomy. See. So if it's in a positive way, then it's, a, it's an entrusting, a handing over in a very special, intimate, powerful way. But if it's negative, in other words, if you are being hoodwinked and, and uh, betrayed and they're handing you over for your execution, for your downfall, then you don't call that an entrusting. The, the, the religious leaders didn't entrust Jesus to the Romans. They betrayed Jesus to the Romans. And so the one word has widely different translations based upon whether it's a, a, a wicked, nefarious, negative activity or whether it's a positive, glorious, um, entrusting activity. You see the difference on that. Well, number 3860 is the strongest concordance number. It's used 119 times in the New Testament, so there's no shortage of it. There's also cognate terms. Parodosis refers to betrayal. Um, there are other... Uh, other terms. There's even uh, uh, para, uh, I think it's paratoma. Our, our word for tradition comes from this aspect. Something that's been handed down. It's been entrusted. We have a tradition. Something that's been handed over. Now it's ours. Our traditions, as it were, come from the similar root. But it's going to be doubly betrayed. Notice. I guess I'll stay in. Uh, where am I? Let's go to Mark. Um. Because the betrayal happens twice. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be paradidomied to the chief priests and the scribes. There's the first betrayal. And this is what's going to happen when Judas kisses him in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And they will condemn him to death. In their illegal trial. We're going to study all the different trials. There's books been written on the trials of Jesus. And uh, the first couple of sessions were illegal. By virtue of the fact they were held at night. And they didn't follow the, uh, the prescriptions as the, the Jewish uh, requirements of a legitimate trial. But then the second betrayal. After they're condemned to death. They will paradidomy. There it is a second time. Hand him over. To the Gentiles. So there's a second betrayal. Doubly betrayed. Paradidomy. All right. And the Gentiles will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. So the second betrayal. And I think it's interesting. Hand it over. You can list these out if you want to under subpoints one and two. Hand it over to the chief priests and the scribes. And this gives Jewish accountability for the crucifixion of the Christ. In fact, they're doubly accountable because not only did they engineer the guilty verdict, which was complete fraud anyway, um, the Gentiles, Pilate, tried to release them. And, uh, and they wouldn't have it. They demanded Barabbas instead. And they said, what then about this one whom you call Christ? They said, crucify him. His blood be upon our heads and our children. And boy, howdy, was it? Oh, read Josephus sometime. Read the accounts of the siege. Um, the misery, oh, the horrible siege there. And, the, and finally, the, the actual destruction when it finally happened. The wrath of God for the generation that crucified their Christ. But then hand it over to the Gentiles. We have Gentile accountability as well. He tried to release, then wouldn't, and then ultimately ordered the death. And then, of course, it was a Roman procedure that put him on the cross. Uh, crucifixion was a Roman method of execution, not a Jewish method of execution. The Jews would stone to death, but the Romans crucified. And that becomes significant because of the nature of the curse that cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And he had to become our curse to free us from the curse. And there's a whole doctrine associated with why the cross was necessary. He couldn't have been thrown off a cliff. He couldn't have been stoned. He couldn't have been, um, you know, the scourging couldn't have killed him. Although I think Satan tried. All right. You know, there's, there's other ways to put a, a mortal human being to physical death. 
but in none of those alternate means of execution could he have had the time or fulfilled the uh, hanging on a tree curse element of the priestly ministry he engaged in. How many souls could he have prayed for? How many sins could he have borne the wrath for in a stoning event? It's over far too quickly. Or in other execution events. No, no, no. It was the crucifixion event. An event which oftentimes takes days. In his case, he, he got it wrapped up in three hours. Three hours of darkness. But it had to be an execution method slow enough for uh, for him to do all the work that was needed to be done under the maximum strain of, of human suffering. And that's the nature of the cross. So handed over, double, doubly betrayed, handed over to the chief priest, handed over to the Gentiles. So any kind of racist, stupid idiocy about, uh, you know, the, the anti-Semitism of Roman Catholicism is insane. But for centuries, the hatred against Jewish people have viewed them as Christ killers. And it's just despicable. Because the Gentiles are just as guilty as the as the Jews, more so. Anyway, plus there's the demonic component as well. The rulers of this age didn't understand the wisdom of God or they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The fallen angels that were motivating all these proceedings, they have their own accountability. All right, finally, D, mocked, mistreated, spit upon, scourged, killed, and crucified. In that order. Matthew has a somewhat abbreviated list. Luke has the fullest list. Mistreated comes in Luke. Mark has mocked, spit upon, scourged, and killed. Matthew is the only gospel record that uses the term crucified. Gentiles will mock, scourge, and crucify him. So Matthew didn't mention the mistreating or the spitting. Anyway, combine the three gospel records and you get these five activities. Six activities. But once again, this is not just simply Jesus prophesying a month out what's going to happen. This is Jesus explaining from the scriptures what's going to happen. And so he's able to take them to Isaiah 53. He's able to take them to Psalm 22, which we'll do next week. (laughs) All right. You want to squeeze it in in a minute and 45 seconds? Isaiah 53. But consider the prophets did something very similarly as well. Um, Does it still count as a prophecy if you're repeating an earlier prophecy? Sure. If it's still yet future and most especially if you are combining additional details or if you are putting together certain passages. And that's what he's doing. He's putting together Daniel. He's putting together Ezekiel. He's putting together Isaiah. He's putting together Moses. He's putting together David. He's putting together all the prophets and everything they had to say about the death of Christ. And he's laying it out right here. And he's bringing them all together. All right? And he had no question as to the messianic nature of these chapters for quite a while you know ahead of time they were debated some would find them as messianic some would not Uh, most they found as messianic uh, and then they changed their tune in the second third century after christ because it, it just looked too similar to what the christians were talking about and so by the time you get to the talmud the babylonian talmud then Isaiah 53 is not messianic anymore. Can't be. They they can't allow that passage to be viewed messianically because that's what the Christians were saying it was. And it just looks too much like Jesus. And so in the Talmud and the Jewish traditions after Christ, that just kind of gets reevaluated and dismissed. And and by the way, it doesn't get featured in their in their readings. The average Jew today, what do they know about Isaiah 53? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, well, like I say, we're out of time. It is 11 o'clock. We will come back to this um, one week from today, Lord willing, rapture pending. We are having a class next week. It's not a moving week, so let's uh, go ahead and just keep having classes until such time as uh, we move to the new facility. 
at which point we will likely lose a week with the move. I uh, expect we'll also lose a week with the Vacation Bible School, so plan on that, the VBS that's happening in, the, in August. Um, so there'll be a couple of, couple of Wednesdays where we won't be having class, but we'll make those announcements as soon as we have more clarity related to, um, related to the upcoming calendar. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for our Savior and his wonderful, wonderful um, capacity for understanding your truth, Father, and how he saturated his mind with your scriptures and how he put scripture together with scripture and how he equipped his disciples to understand these things which must take place. And uh, much as he did on the Emmaus Road after the ascension, he's doing so here with the twelve before the crucifixion. And it's a great pattern for us, Father. If we ever, ever doubt or wonder about our hermeneutic or about our uh, methodology for Bible study and exposition, all we need to do, Father, is turn to our Savior and see how did he handle the Scriptures. And we find once again the assurance that we have the proper biblical hermeneutic. We have the proper biblical methodology. And that the uh, the uh, approach we have in this ministry to the how to handle your word is exactly in uh, the imitation of Jesus Christ. And so I thank you for that. Thank you for these students and we thank you for all your grace in Christ's name. Amen.